According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 10. Thank you, sir. Proverbs chapter 10. We're about halfway through this chapter. And I think upcoming verses are going to start coming uh, more quickly. I think I've said that before, though. All right, we've handled verses 6 through 11 in main point 8, and uh, moved on to see verse 12, and then verses 13 and 14, where we were last week. Hatred stirs up strife in verse 12, but love covers all transgressions. And there's a play on words here. It's picking up on the idea of covering. Uh, covering had been the inclusio uh, markers uh, for the previous verses. Uh, in verse 8, uh, it was translated conceal. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. That phrase gets repeated in verse 11. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And the Hebrew language there related to concealing. That was the term that was the marker for our inclusio. We were looking at those verses as a in, and the poetic structure of it. The same verb then gets repeated in verse 12. It's not translated as conceals. It's translated as covers. And, uh, and, I, and I guess I understand why the, the New American Standard translators kind of changed the translation on that just to show that Sometimes you're covering for right reasons and sometimes you're covering for wrong reasons. And in the wrong reasons, if you're concealing violence, the, the nature there is is that you have a heart of evil and you're, you're devising harm against somebody and so you don't say anything because you're setting them up for, for destruction. Uh, you, you're saying, you're telling them lies. You're, you're telling them that you're on their side and then meanwhile you're, you know, your tongue and your teeth are just swords and spears and you're ready to, to, to kill them as first chance you get. That's clearly the the, the wrong side of, of concealing things, right. But the positive side of concealing things is when in grace, when in love, you choose to not bring up something that has been forgiven, that has been recovered from, a sin that somebody has moved past. You don't keep bringing it up again. You let it go. Love covers the multitude of sins. And so we don't bring those matters up. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. And so uh, we have the principle there that we uh, saw a couple weeks back. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside distractions and to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning, this new day that you've set before us for the Proverbs study and the blessings that it is, Father, for us to come together and to receive instruction. I thank you for this class, Father. In many ways, it's the highlight of my week, and I just rejoice that we have the blessings that we have to come together and to study in in this way. Father, I thank you for uh, your faithfulness to lead us in all things. Uh, We depend upon you, Father, that our study has to be through the Holy Spirit. It uh, is not a human exercise based upon how smart we are to figure these things out. And I thank you for that, Father. And we're calling upon your faithfulness once again this hour. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right. Let me find the slide we're looking for here. This is a new feature I've just learned how to do. You can see every slide in the slideshow. And uh, hopefully spot the one we're looking at here. Let's go for that one. Point nine in the outline, Proverbs ten twelve follows the conceals violence inclusio with a beautiful covering or concealment that is always done in love. And this is uh, what we talked about there in verse uh, 12 with the covering. Love covers all transgressions. And many are of the view, or some, I shouldn't say many, some are on the view that this verse opens another inclusio and 
uh, they take it down through verse 18, uh, verse 12 and verse 18. I struggle to see that in particular because verse 18 has so many problems of its own. Uh, verse 18 has some manuscript questions and has some um, puzzles related to how do we handle it. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. And there are manuscript questions with respect to this that I think uh, when we get that far, we're going to probably prefer the Septuagint reading to the Masoretic Hebrew reading as it as it comes to uh, to this. So we may retranslate that verse accordingly when we reach that point. And even with the retranslation of the verse, I still struggle to see the uh, the inclusio for what it is because I think verses 13 and 14 form a, a tandem, 15 and 16 form a tandem, 17 sits by itself, and. Uh, 18 seems to sit by itself. And, and the verses that follow seem to sit by themselves as well. Uh, we've got a, a lot of aspects here on, on language, on lips, on speaking uh, from verse 18, from verse 19, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Verse 20, you've got a tongue. Verse 21, you've got lips. Uh, so in those verses, 18, 19, 20, and 21, we seem to, again, be kind of in a little stretch there where we're dealing with lips and tongues and teeth and mouth and speaking and, and things of that nature. Anyway, you read uh, 20 commentaries on, on Proverbs, you're going to get 20 different outlines for every chapter imaginable. And uh, some of them are kind of hard to, hard to follow. In any event, the principle about covering uh, of, of love covering a multitude of sins i hope we recognize it it's going to go well with verse 19 sometimes the smartest thing you can do is just close your mouth <laughs> all right do yourself a favor and just stop talking right now okay you've said enough that's enough and um just discern the discernment there there's a time to speak and a time to be silent and this is not one of them right figure out which one it's not and 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 do what you should be doing as you're led by the holy spirit in this in this capacity anyway james 5 20 first peter 4 8 we're familiar with these and uh so forth now we get to uh, verse 13 on the lips of the discerning wisdom is found but a rod is for the back of him who has understanding wise men store up knowledge but with the mouth of the foolish ruin is at hand we were tackling this tandem of verses, and we, and we did, I thought, most of it next uh, last week, that there's a public benefit when you have people with wisdom. There's also a public harm when you have too many fools running around, all right? And this uh, shows us, I think, in this pair of verses, this shows us the overall um, impact of Proverbs chapter 10 through chapter 25. That's why I've titled this Personal and Public Wisdom. The idea that we have personal wisdom ourselves individually and then that, that becomes reflected in our culture. That we have impact in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our communities, in our nation. That there is a personal, uh, there is a public benefit to our personal wisdom as we live out our faith publicly to our, to our, uh, our, our family, our neighbors, our enemies. All right. Even our enemies should be blessed by the wisdom that we apply. And so there is a public benefit that it will be evident in the personal wisdom of its population. Likewise, the harm that comes on the flip side to this. And so we start with the. Um, I think we gave this. Did we? We gave these last week, right? A and B. I believe. Yes, we did. So the wise man provides a public benefit. Not only are they a dispensary, they're also a storehouse. As we see it here, on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. They become a, a source of wisdom. They become a dispensary. He provides a public benefit in the wisdom they dispense, as well as the knowledge they retain. See, and that's verse 14. Wise men store up knowledge. So the first half of verse 13, the first half of verse 14 has the, the wisdom side of things. And you want that. You want men of wisdom and women of wisdom in your neighborhoods, in your town, in your uh, state, in your nation. And, and the, the land will be blessed when there are believers that are walking according to biblical principles. The more, the more Christians that you have, 
uh, the more salt and light that you have to preserve a nation, to preserve a community. And, um, you know, they, it's, it's remarkable how the, the unbeliever just mocks us and scorns us and ridicules us and calls us all kinds of names and, and even, you know, accuses us of amazing things that aren't even remotely true as in somehow, you know, we're, we, we vote in such a way or we get, we get politically active because we're trying to impose a theocracy on everybody, right? We, we want, uh, we're trying to force everybody to accept our, our theocratic views on things, you know. I, I honestly don't know anybody who's trying to do that, but, but you listen to them and they're convinced everybody's trying to do that. That's our, that's our secret cabal to try to bring in this theocratic uh, kingdom, say, now, there are some that pursue a dominion theology, and it's kind of sad that they do. Um, but certainly not every Christian on the, on the planet is doing that, and we're certainly not in, uh, in that regard. But the benefit that we have to provide wisdom, because where else can wisdom be found? You know, they're looking for wisdom in all the wrong places, and, and they're trying to find wisdom here and wisdom there, and they're reading this self-help book and that self-help book, and they're listening to this guru, and they're paying you know, money for this weekend conference and all these, all these amazing things. This lost and dying world is searching for answers everywhere except where the real answers can be found. That's right. And we have the answers. And so we can be a benefit to our culture, and we should. We should also be a storehouse as we store up knowledge and uh, a depository there where um, it is uh, made available. The fool, on the other hand, and so as we looked at these scriptures, Proverbs 3.13, 8.17, 10.13, where can wisdom be found? And uh, guess what? It's found with us, and we uh, ought to be uh, dispensing it. Job 28, you can dig for it in a mine. Can you dig for it in a mine? No, you can't. And it's far above rubies anyway, so there you have it. The fool only provides public ruin and requires the rod to mitigate the impact he would otherwise have. And this is the second half of verse 13 and the second half of verse 14, okay? As you follow the poetry here of these verses. So in the second half of verse 13, it says, A rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. And the second half of verse 14 says, But with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Is, is, is the damage limited to him only? When, when the fool is out there doing the things the fool is doing? Okay, no. Ruin affects him and it affects those around him. It affects his family. It affects uh, his neighborhood. It affects all of society. Suffers the consequences of the fool. And all of society suffers multiplied consequences of multiplied fools. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you could think of this as the anti-pivot, if you will. You ever... I mean, Pastor Theme developed the concept of the pivot, if you ever remember that vocabulary in that. But it's, it's basically, it's the, it's the benefit that a culture has when you have a concentration of believers. Ten righteous men could have saved Sodom. All right? What's the, what's the benefit of, of a body of righteous believers? What's the benefit to Austin, Texas, because Austin Bible Church is growing in the truth? See, well, we'll find out when we find out, but I believe it's, it's a tremendous benefit that the state of Texas actually has a wealth of, of, of solid men teaching the truth of the Word of God. And in, you know, you plot all the churches around the country of where you pray for them and that, there's states that don't have any. And there's states that have an abundant number. And I even get a, um, we have a we're having a six-pastor lunch on Saturday. I'm looking forward to that. We're going we're gonna to rendezvous at a secret place. I can't tell you where it is or you'd crash the party. Um, and uh, but we're all we're gathering in from all kinds of places around the state, and we're going to have a fun lunch. See, anyway, so there's a benefit to uh, um, the salt and light that happen. But if a land becomes unsalty, will it ever become salty again? There's a there's a rhetorical question that Jesus asked there in the Gospels, and the indication is the expectation is no. I mean, when, when does a nation ever restore its salt once it's lost its salt? It tends to be the, the downward slide and then the cycles of discipline take that nation out of world history. All right. So uh, the damage that's done, the impact that's done. And when you read about the rod, here's a whole chain of passages here that read about the rod. In many of these, we're not talking about children. Okay. Now, some of them are child-raising passages, and we get that that uh, you spare the rod, you spoil the child. 
and that um, you know modern parenting, uh, you know psychological parenting would tell you that spanking is harmful to the child's self-esteem, but the Bible tells you that lack of spanking is harmful to the child's soul, and uh, that the unruly child who is, is a fallen uh, soul in Adam needs to be uh, disciplined, and discipline is a love application. And when we don't discipline them as youths, what happens? We end up with adults that need to be disciplined. And uh, the need doesn't change just because it's not done in the youth. Okay, The need is still there. And how many of these passages are in adult context? I meant to highlight those, and so I'll have to do that now. Uh, but as we look in, in Proverbs 10, in, in verses 13 and 14, is there anything in this context that seems to be parents towards children? No, the whole thing appears to be adults in society. The whole context of this, uh, from wise men and, and, and fool, foolish men, it appears to be uh, believers in adult standing, as we see here. We'll have more on, to say on this when we get to uh, verses uh, 15 and following, because again, it's adults in their full standing in society. The rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. So when you want to contrast a fortress with a, with a ruin, which one do you want to live in? Okay, And notice it's wisdom versus foolishness again. But that term ruin gets repeated in verse 15 that we're looking at right now here in, in verse 14. It's adult capacity. Same thing when we get into chapter, let's see, some, chapter 13. Like I say, I forgot to mark which of these were childhood context. All right, chapter 13 is childhood. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So this one's childhood. All right, chapter 19. In verse 29. Judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the backs of fools. Back up a verse. A rascally witness makes a mockery of justice. Sounds like a presidential candidate. The mouth of the, the, mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. Hmm. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. I don't see anything here that relates to childhood. Uh, there is father and mother mentioned in verse 26. He who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and disgraceful son. Now it seems to me like verse 29 is in an adult context, same as what we're dealing with here in, uh, in chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. All right, Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Okay, so there's childhood there. Chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Though you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You will strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Say, if you don't discipline your child, you don't love your child. So those are all childhood references. Whoops, back up. Chapter 26. <laughs> yeah, this is full adult right here. A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. And that leads you into what apparently contradicts itself in verses 4 and 5, but no, they, they're not contradictory. It's just the, there's a time for everything. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Either or both, depending on how you're convicted and, and the opportunity the Lord opens. You can apply verse 4 for the right reasons. You can apply verse 5 for the right reasons. And just decide in humility before the Lord what you're doing and why you're doing it. If you're, gonna, are you, if you're not giving an answer because you're just chicken and cowardly and you don't want to speak the truth in love, well then that's not the right reasons. All right? But if you're under conviction that he's a fool and that if you get down on his level, you're going to bring dishonor to, to Jesus Christ, well then, in faith, make that choice and don't go there. Say, but know why you're doing it. 
and, and make sure it's a faith application uh, if you speak, or make sure it's a faith application if you stay silent. And the other thing too, don't think that just because you're speaking you're automatically serving the Lord. Because you might be carnal as anything, just mad and you want to win an argument. You want to you you argue about something, alright? Oh, never mind, revoke the Doug. <laughs> I recognize Radley, I'm okay. Alright. So there's a time to speak and a time not to speak as we look here at Proverbs 26. Uh, verse 4 says don't answer him. Verse 5 says answer him. And so you're going to apply both verses, not at the same time, but on different occasions. You'll apply one verse and on different occasions you apply the other verse. And you just got to be humble before the Lord to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And don't, uh, don't try to lie about it. Okay? But what leads into that is verse 3. A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod is for the back of fools. That's an adult statement right there. See? Finally, 29.15, which I think is back to childhood again. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So yeah, that's another childhood reference. So then, of course, with all of those, you go to Hebrews 13 and you read about the discipline that happens there and how God loves us and He disciplines us. What child is there that's without discipline? You know, it's the child that the, that the parent does not love because he, he disciplines us in His love. And we can appreciate that. All right? Now, on the basis of these passages in chapter 10, chapter 19, and chapter 26, where the rod is administered um, by society. It is a criminal justice application. All right? And you ask yourself, what harm have, has our culture come to by revoking such applications? Okay? And as I mentioned, you know, psychology says you're harming your children if you spank them. The Bible says you're harming them if you don't spank them. So you're going to listen to the Bible or you're going to listen to the Bible haters. All right? Because there's a reason why the, the, the uh, anti-Christian psychiatrists are saying the things they're saying. That's on a family basis. What about on a societal basis? So am I advocating the bringing back the rod again? <laughs> you know, and it was it was part of American justice for a long, long time up until recently, up until twentieth century. Okay, in the founding of our nation, it was not considered cruel and unusual punishment. That's the thing. If we have a constitutional protection against cruel and unusual punishment, but what was cruel and unusual in the minds of those who wrote the the words cruel and unusual punishment? Okay. And, and uh, the lash was not considered cruel and unusual. The rod was not considered cruel and unusual. And they even increased it from, they had a, a tradition of 39 lashes because of the Old Testament, and they increased it to 100 lashes uh, under, under General Washington. He got congressional approval to, to, to administer up to 100 lashes to the Continental Army as a disciplinary function. Anyway... Um, I don't know that our culture would ever return to such a thing. Or, 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 but if we did, if, if we, you know, think about not, not just corporal punishment, capital punishment is under, under attack. And these are the things. You've got capital punishment for murderer, murderers and rapists and, and adulterers. Are we going to bring those traditions back too? <laughs> right? Good luck with that. Convince a politician to institute the death penalty for adultery. We would list half of Congress. We lose, no, we lose most of Congress, right? It's not going to happen. But because it doesn't happen, what then is the effect? How then is sin emboldened? How then is it repeated? How defiled does our land become? See, if you, if you execute the adulterer, you're limiting the damage. When you don't execute the adulterer, what do you get? More adultery, more adultery, more adultery. Decades of adultery, okay? Decades of land defilement that should have been cut off a long time ago. All right. So yes, I would be in favor. When, um, when we fight our war for Texas independence, and when, 
in uh, next year or whenever that might happen. Okay, um, in the Second Texas Republic, if I am consulted in how to draft the Constitution and the laws of the Second Republic of Texas. Um, I'll, I'll give my my contributions as far as what we should include in what defiles a land and what preserves a land and what blesses a land uh, according to the scriptures. All right. Let's uh, look at the next stretch. Let me get back to Proverbs 10 now. We have a grace perspective on wealth and poverty. A grace perspective on wealth and poverty that provides a crucial contrast between this life and the next. Let's look at verses 15 and 16 and then we'll get the point. Um, The rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. The wages of the righteous is life. The income of the wicked, punishment. All right, we've got two verses here that come as a tandem, that come as a, as a verse pairing like we had before with uh, verses 13 and 14 were a pairing. Verses 15 and 16 now are a pairing. The common thread that ties it together is, is wealth versus poverty, but also understand that the, uh, the underlying issue here is not just this life, but the next. It's about, it's looking at spiritual realities as well as temporal life. It is a grace perspective on wealth and poverty that provides a crucial contrast between this life and the next. It's problematic, I think, if uh, it's almost, it would would belong in Ecclesiastes instead of Proverbs if we take verse 15 the way a lot of commentaries want to take verse 15, is that, well, if you have a lot of money, then you can take care of yourself and live in a fortress. If you're dirt poor, well, you don't got much going for you. Um, the poverty, you're just, you're just living in a ruin. Okay, And you can look at verse 15 that way. Okay. And, and, and I would agree that, yes, a lot of rich people view their wealth as their fortress. A lot of rich people view their money as what's going to take care of them. I get that. There's a lot of people who do that. And then there's a lot of poor people who, yeah, they wallow in their poverty. And they just view it as, as just a, a, a ruin and a, and a haunt, as it were. And I get that. But verse 15 doesn't sit by itself. Verse 15 sits with verse 16. And I believe the pair here come together to show that there are wages, that there is production. And that's production as God designed it. As God designed life, as God designed us to operate, the wages of the righteous is life. What, what, do we mean, what do we mean by that? How does that connect with verse 15? How do we put these two verses together and create a principle that, that agrees with all of Scripture? Well, I just did. It's point 11 on the slide. And it goes marvelously well with the principles that we glean out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, which we'll see here in a moment. Whereas the carnal perspective is uh, fixed only on this life. And so again, we would look at verses 15 and 16, first of all, with a grace perspective. And we have principles that are in agreement with all of Scripture. And then we look at verses 15 and 16 from a carnal perspective. And what do we have? Principles that agree with all of Scripture. And I think it's fun to look at these uh, verses in, in both ways. The wages of the righteous is life. That's a, that's a good wages verse to contrast with. Um, the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's wages there as well. The wages of the righteous is life. The income of the wicked is punishment. And so whether we're looking at wages or income, what we're looking at here is consequences. And we're looking at what gets produced. What is the outcome? What happens when you work hard? What happens when you save? What happens when you accumulate? What happens when you, not just when you earn income, but when you accumulate wealth? What happens? And then what is the consequence of living the life of wisdom versus living the life of foolishness? All right? As I say, I think this is a marvelous um, parallel to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, the Apostle Paul had Proverbs 10 in his mind when he wrote. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not a quotation, but I think it's an allusion. 
A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, allusion. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 17 through 19. And you'll note that in the context of this, it's fighting the good fight, it's preparing for heaven. Um, There's earlier verses that reference money here as well. Um, What he's warning Timothy about here. There's friction in verse 5. Constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. All right, you got to guard against that. If you encounter somebody in the ministry that thinks the ministry is the is the path to uh, riches, <laughs> that he can use religiosity to uh, to get rich, he's got the wrong approach to ministry. He says in verse six, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. When accompanied by contentment, and here's the key. So we're looking at profit, and profit's not a bad thing, but we want to consider what the eternal profit is, and uh, and that. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And so here's a perspective, a perspective on money, a perspective on income. What standard of living do we need to have so we can view ourselves as successful compared to our neighbors and, uh, and all the rest? Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs and so if you are maladjusted to the purpose of wealth the purpose of money you're opening yourself up to all kinds of problems so he says flee from these things you man of god and pursue and these are the items you're supposed to pursue fight the good fight verse 12 I charge you in the presence of God, verse 13. Keep the commandment, verse 14. Okay, so there's all of these things. Then he comes back to the money issue in verse 17. And that's what I'm driving at here. I think 17 through 19 is a, is a great parallel to Proverbs 10. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. There's two snares of what happens there. And, and pride's the first, first one. Well, look what I've done. Look what I've earned. Look what I've saved. Look what I've made. I'm a self-made man. All these things. And so the person that's well off can become prideful because of that or fix their hope on that. And that's what I think is, is dealt with there in the, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. That's where his hope is. That's where his confidence is. He's very brave inside his fortress. Why? Well, because nothing can touch him. What's going to get to him? He's He's safe. Fixing your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Faith isn't in what money can protect you from, it's in God. God's the one that provided that money, God's the one that's taken care of you. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and when He takes away, He's still the same God that's going to take care of you. And I like the, the expression, uncertainty of riches. <laughs> you know? The uncertainty of riches. I think of the uncertainty of fortresses. How's that? You know, every castle I ever toured. I lived in Germany for two years, and it was my hobby was was touring castles, and I toured as many as I could find. In fact, I went to a couple that I got in trouble to going to because getting there took you on roads you shouldn't have been on. But they were nice castles, and and the the, the Coburg Castle in particular was was not in the one K zone back in the. Back when there wasn't East and West Germany, there was a border between them, and then there was a a, a 1K zone, which was off limits to, to Army personnel. And so uh, the, the theory being, if you never go into the 1K zone, if you never get within one kilometer of the of the border, well then, by definition, you can't cross the border. Makes sense. So there was a very firm 1K zone, and all military personnel were, were prohibited from crossing into that. And... Um, Unfortunately, one of the castles we really, really, really liked going through, going to, had roads to get there that passed through the 1K zone. And if you weren't careful, you took the wrong road and you ended up there. And that, that happened to us on a uh, very unforgettable occasion. So, 
So we, um, we, perf- we liked this castle a lot. And like I say, we weren't wrong for going to the castle. It's just you had to be careful to take the right road to get you there. But now, what am I explaining? Oh, yeah, these castles, mighty castles, thick walls, high walls, impressive buildings until they're not, until the cannonballs smash through the castle. All right? technology surpassed the castle. It got to the point where the castle just sits there and gunpowder could hurl uh, cannonballs through those walls. We can knock those walls down. And so military theory had to grow and adapt and, and technology had to adapt and, and, and different things. Uh, it just became too expensive to build a castle and too cheap to knock it down. And so economically... Um, it made no sense to keep building these things. All right? But that's the illustration for what I think Proverbs is driving at here. And what First Timothy is driving at here, the uncertainty of riches, the uncertainty of how safe am I inside this fortress? Well, how much food do you have? Okay? Because we can, we can, wait, we can out- outweigh you. You know, we can, uh, you know, sieges always work if you wait long enough. Because there's, there's a finite quantity of food inside that, inside that city. A siege will always work. So the uncertainty of riches, um, the contrast between a fortress and a ruin, it's pretty vivid. And how many ruins used to be fortresses? Okay, And how many fortresses will become ruins in the future? Maybe the near future. So we need, to, uh, we need to be mindful of these things. So don't fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That's another purpose for the wealth that is accumulated. It's to enjoy. And, and if you're maladjusted, if you don't have a grace perspective on wealth, you could be in the most miserable rich person anybody ever knows. You're Scrooge McDuck, right? Or Scrooge... Uh, um, Scrooge, yeah. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge from, uh, yeah. You're, just, you're rich as anything and, and you're not enjoying any of it because you're horrified that you're going to lose it. Someone's going to take it from you. You're going to get robbed or, or your investments are turned south or something, you know, you just, it's, it's never enough for some people and they don't enjoy what they've been given. And God has given us all these things to enjoy. The purpose for why He's provided these things. Not to have it, but to use it, to enjoy it, to glorify Christ in it. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. This is where we are right now in Galatians 6, is it not? Doing good and sharing. We do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. We reap what we sow. And specifically in uh, financial matters towards the ministry. That's what Galatians 6 is dealing with. Bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. So uh, be rich in good works. You can be rich in in earthly money and, and dirt broke, dead poor and good works. To be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. You can have Bill Gates kind of money on this earth and be dead broke for the next. You can be dead broke on this earth and be laying up treasure in heaven beyond description. The, the, the widow and her two mites gave more than all those rich guys in the temple, and Jesus said that to his disciples. It's the attitude. And if you're generous and ready to share, you may not have to share. I mean, if you don't have it, you can't share it. But if you're ready to share, if you're able to, if you're willing to share, if you have the grace perspective on sharing, then that's, that's what gets rewarded is the attitude. So you give your two mites, you share what you share, and look at the treasure that gets laid up in heaven. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. See, so many people don't know how to lay up treasures. How do you make a deposit in the heavenly bank account? We're told right here. Have the right attitude here and now. Be generous and ready to share. So that they may take hold of that. Now notice, that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 
That's the expression. In so many of these terms, they go back to Proverbs 10. I think Paul had that in his mind. Life indeed. What is the wages of righteousness? Life. We read in Proverbs 10. To lay hold of that which is life indeed. Too many people are living this life and they're not laying hold of real life. They're living bios life, but they're not living Zoe life. And guess which one we're not taking with us to heaven, right? The Zoe life is the eternal life. Bios life, it fades, it dies, it ends. We want to lay hold of that which is life indeed. Again, I would remind you, Proverbs 10... The wages of the righteous is life. I think Jesus promised, you know, that they would have life. They would have it abundantly. These are the concepts we're talking about. This is why if if without the the doctrinal understanding of of scriptures and how to apply them, I I wouldn't trade our style of teaching. I wouldn't trade our traditions, the the form of teaching to which we are committed. This, this gives us our reality. This helps us shape everything from, our, from our, our financial life to our family life to, to everything that we do. It puts things in perspective on an eternal scale. And I think without an accurate understanding, you end up um, plunging into some kind of health, wealth, and prosperity heresy. You start plunging into a, into a God wants you to be wealthy and happy and, you know, approach to, to things. All right. Flip side, the carnal perspective on wealth and poverty. It fixes hope only on this life. It fixes hope on how smart we are, what we've got figured out, what we have laid up for ourselves, all the great things we have done. It is completely off track to grace and is completely maladjusted to what God has done. And I think it's blasphemous in claiming credit for what God has done. How dare I claim credit for anything that my God has done? Because it's all grace. And so uh, when Proverbs 10 here gets restated in Proverbs 18.11, I think it's more blunt than what we have today. Look at Proverbs A rich man's wealth is his strong city. Word for word, it's like a repeat of what we have in Proverbs 10 this morning. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. (laughs) Okay? In his own imagination. And then before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. But humility goes before honor, right? Pride goeth before the fall. There it is. But think about it, like the high wall in his own imagination, he's so convinced, he says, soul, you have many good things. And he's so convinced that all his problems are taken care of. He has insurance against everything. Fire, flood, earthquake, meteors, dinosaurs. I mean, this guy is so wealthy, there is nothing. He can't imagine anything touching him. And, you know, it falls apart. Money fails. Economy collapses. The fortress is not what you think it is. How about Ecclesiastes 7.12? Now, Ecclesiastes is like the anti-Proverbs, all right? Ecclesiastes is wisdom corrupted. It is human viewpoint apart from the truth of the Word of God. And so you can look at the world with some kind of secular wisdom and start to figure certain things out, but you end up with, through human viewpoint, you end up with such a cynicism. You end up with a view that just says, well, we're all going to die anyway, so who cares? And these thoughts get reflected in various chapters. Chapter 7, and you'll notice there's there's, uh, some back and forth here in these verses, but... um, Verse 12, wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So yeah, money can solve a lot of things. Wisdom can solve a lot of things. You want both. Consider the work of God for he who is able to straighten what, or for who is able to straighten what he has bent. 
In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. You know, you ever think you've seen it all? Solomon knew he'd seen it all. God showed him everything so he could see it all. It's being expressed here through the human viewpoint. It's just such a tragic book. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. Why do the good die young? Why does this wicked guy seem to live longer? Do not be excessively righteous. (laughs) And do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Come on, don't be a fanatic about it. Anyway, there's a human viewpoint approach, a carnal perspective on wealth and poverty. My favorite is 10.19, Ecclesiastes 10.19. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Isn't that great? That's a Bible verse right there. Put that on a business card. Put that on a refrigerator knickknack. Sell that a Lifeway with the other refrigerator knickknacks. All right. It's in the Bible. It's not true with divine viewpoint. We know it's, it's a lie. But it is the expression of human viewpoint. And God the Holy Spirit inspired this to be in our canon of Scripture. The entire book, all of Ecclesiastes, is, is perverted wisdom minus divine viewpoint. And God lets it be in the Bible. I think it's brilliant on God's part to put Ecclesiastes in the Bible the way that he did. And Song of Solomon, for that matter. Put that in the Bible for the reason why you have that there too. All right. Job 31, verses 24 through 28. More carnal perspectives on wealth and poverty. Job 31. See, and you can come to an assumption that, well, if you're struggling financially, what's wrong with you? And if you're serving God, then you're going to be, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be rich. And Job exposes some of this here. Um, he says, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, see, he hasn't done any of this. He, this is the kind of the closing arguments on his defense here. And he says, I haven't done this. Other people do. I suspect perhaps even his three accusers here maybe have been guilty of this in their, uh, in their history. If I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked on the sun when it shone and the moon go, uh, going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God above. But he says he didn't do any of that. He didn't pursue any of those things. Anyway, that reflects a human viewpoint, carnal perspective on wealth and poverty. Uh, We go to the New Testament, Luke chapter 12. I think I mentioned this earlier. He said to them, be on guard against every form of greed. For even when one has an abundance, not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. So much for the he who dies with the most toys wins um, perspective, right? And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods and laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The point being here, of course, is he's missed the purpose for the wealth. He's missed the purpose for the production. He makes no mention of the fact that he has an abundance, that he has a a, a surplus that he could choose to share. 
didn't even cross his mind. Let's just save up more because I'm keeping all of it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Is that why he's giving it to you? How much can you eat? (laughs) How much can you drink? How much fun can you have? Nothing wrong with any of it. But what's the point of having it? Are we enjoying it? Are we sharing it with others? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Who are you saving it for? You don't even know. Who will own what you have prepared? Why why is he ignorant of who his heir might be? Probably because he doesn't have an heir. Maybe he's so busy pursuing career and success and and all the rest of this. I mean, we got the same thing happening today. Our population is not replenishing itself. Everyone's pursuing career. We are on a diminished population, um, uh, a negative population growth. Most of the Western world is on a negative population growth. So who uh, who is it that's uh, going to receive this? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's that contrast. And this is what, again, Paul addressed this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The, um, before you even get to chapter 6, chapter 4 expresses this as well. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8 and verse 10. Carnal view on wealth. See, money is not evil, but the love of money is the root of these things. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8 and verse 10. Um, everything, let's see. I'm talking about this life and the life to come. Are we paying attention to this life and the life to come? 1 Timothy 4, 8. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life also for the life to come. Don't be so wrapped up in this life that we're forgetting the life to come. That's true in our health and our and our appetites and our exercise and our finances. It's not just this life, but the life to come. Verse um, 10. It is for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Again, it's that life to come. It is for this that we labor and strive. We're not just wrapped up in this life. A carnal view is just on this life. And uh, all of the financial planning that's for this life only. I get that. We want to have end-of-life planning. We want to have long-term savings. We want to have different things. But if that's as far as we take it, we're not taking it far enough. We want to be eternal in our thinking. We want to be thinking of this life and the next. We want to think of, of the legacy we're leaving to our children and our grandchildren, not just the, the dollars we're leaving them, but the spiritual heritage we're leaving our children and our grandchildren. We ought to be thinking on this life and the life to come. All right, and then, of course, 6.17 we saw earlier in uh, to be rich in... Uh, good works to be rich towards god instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on god who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy all right verses uh 19 and 20 proverbs 10 verses 19 and 20 so i told you we're going to start working our way quicker through these When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth a little. We find out here that uh, communication of God's word is an awesome responsibility. In fact, we're going to go all the way down through verse 21. Uh, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. We've got to be careful in what we say and how we say it. We can, we can, we already seen, we can do great harm with our lips. We can do great blessings with our lips. We had that in a previous point. Gets restated here as well. Communication of God's word is an awesome responsibility, especially as the mouth can get us into so much trouble. 
when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Make sure when you're speaking the truth of God's word that you're speaking God's word, not your opinion. Make sure when, uh, when you're offering up wisdom, you're offering up God's wisdom, not your wisdom. Otherwise, uh, you're coming into the, the judgment here that Jeremiah's got to deal with, with his false prophets in his day and age. So we have uh, Proverbs 10, verses 19 through 21. We've got Jeremiah 23, verses 25 through 32. 1 Peter 4, 11. Whoever speaks is to speak as those who are uttering the utter, who are speaking the utterances of God, we're told. I think James 3, let not many of you become teachers. There is such an awesome responsibility in this. Because the mouth can get us into so much trouble. And yet think about the blessing. Now, now don't think that silence is always the answer, because there is a time to speak. And if you stay silent when you're supposed to speak, look out. You're supposed to be bearing that fruit. God is assigning you that, that responsibility to bear that fruit. Don't think that, oh, well, I'm not a communicator. I, I'm a server. I'm not going to speak. No, that's your door to speak. All right, I've got four minutes left. I'm pondering jumping into this or not jumping into this. In a lot of ways, it's just so easy that the verses explain themselves, right? Uh, don't say too much. Let's look at Jeremiah 23. Because what happens when you're not speaking the truth and yet you claim that you are? There's a God of truth that's going to hold you accountable. And um, the presumption, the presumption of not, uh, of, of taking it upon yourself the wrath that comes as a consequence of that. All right, Jeremiah 23, verses 25 through 32. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. All right? That's what God wants to have spoken. It's his word, not ours. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. And we're going to have this coming up in our Jeremiah series. I mean, they were trying to outdo one another. They were ripping off one another, you know, in blatant prophetic plagiarism and, uh, and, and gathering followings for themselves. They're not even speaking the word of God, but they, they say that they are. So therefore, behold, I'm against the prophets. Verse 31, behold, I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and relate them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. What is it they're accomplishing? They're not providing the slightest benefit. And yet in God's design, as we see it here in Proverbs 10, what is it supposed to be when we speak? Better than silver, better than fine gold, better than rubies. The wisdom that, that God provides for us, that we communicate, is supposed to be a tremendous benefit. Not so in their case. Not so in their case. No, it is an awesome responsibility. 1 Peter 4.11. We'll see the carnal side of this next week. Remember, there are speaking gifts. There are serving gifts. It's useful to break them down into those two sides. But just because yours is a serving gift, don't think that you will never speak. And just because yours is a speaking gift, don't think that you will never serve. <laughs> okay, Every speaker ought to be serving and every server ought to be speaking when those occasions present themselves. 
But as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, and whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So don't use human effort, use God's empowerment. Don't use human wisdom, use God's wisdom. Whether you're serving or you're speaking, it's about God working in and through you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. All right, we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for these Proverbs. They, they practically preach themselves, Father. They're so straightforward, and I thank you for them. I ask that we would be humble before them. We would not only learn them, but we would memorize them, that we would have them come to our thinking. And I just thank you so much, again, that you provide this class, an oasis in the middle of a, of a week's wilderness. I thank you for this study, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.